Let's rock and roll. Rock and roll indeed. Today, Brian and I interview someone who is, to us, most definitely a rock star, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. For many of you, Dr. Hayes will need no introduction. Many of our listeners maybe practice or have heard of acceptance commitment therapy. If you have, you've read at least a half a dozen forewords written by Steve, as well as probably a number of his books. But here I'll take a second and give a more formal introduction. Stephen C. Hayes is a foundation professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of 46 books, including Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, which for a time was the best-selling self-help book in the United States, and his new book, A Liberated Mind. An expert on the importance of acceptance, mindfulness, and values, he's ranked among the most cited psychologists in the world. And I gotta say, before we start, everything about this has been a hoot. Steve was so generous with his time and energy and openness, and really shared with us exactly how personal this particular issue is to him. It was a fun conversation, and editing it over the weekend, I have just wanted to post clips again and again and again, but mostly have resisted the urge so that we could just release the full episode we're very excited to do so. But one last thing first. In doing a podcast and looking at promoting it, the same thing comes up again and again and again that I'm supposed to do some sort of call to action. I'm not generally very good about that, but today I would like to invite you, if you listen to the episode and you enjoy it as much as I think you will, please consider sharing this episode on your social media channels, email it to friends or colleagues you think may be interested, or share it in any professional forums in which it might be applicable. And now, without any further ado, enjoy the show, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. All right, we are here with Steve Hayes, and um, before we get started, I wanted to set this up with my own history with ACT, just very briefly. I came from a perspective of being interested in psychedelics and psychedelic change first, which led me to graduate school in counseling psychology, and in my clinical internship, I had a uh, supervisor that was an ACT therapist, and I had a pretty bad view of behaviorism, right? I, you know, I was not inclined. And she was like, here's this. And I'm like, it's behavior. Okay. It's behaviorism. Ugh. And I started reading it and I got to the part, you know, I got to diffusion and they were talking about like repeating milk, 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 and picturing words in, uh, you know, in banners on a billboard and things like that. And then I got to reading about self as context and yourself as a big chessboard. And I thought, man, whoever came up with this, Hmm. I, they, I think they knew what was going on psychedelically. Like that was my first response when, when reading the book. And so I knew who came up with it because it was on the front of the book. So I guess uh, my first question is just in your view, did psychedelics influence the, the beginning of act? You know, I think it's it probably was essential. I'm a child of the sixties and seventies, you know, I mean, I was there in summer of love. I sat on hippie Hill 
I lived on uh, in the panhandle of uh, Golden Gate Park. I carried around a, a big gigantic door from 406 Cole Street, which I shouldn't have stolen from the house, but I did because it had an amazing picture on it that was from three different psychedelic trips of friends who came and would add to it. And uh, when I moved from North Carolina, I couldn't picture how to move that 200 pound door uh, and, all the way across the country. And I sadly left it behind it kind of as a, a symbol also of, you know, that was then and this is now. Uh, and I think a whole lot of hipsters, hippy dippy folks did that because they saw it unravel. I mean, I saw Summer of Love turn into needles and dog poop on the street with a guy lying in the gutter in two years. Boom. Uh, and people coming into your back you know, room and stealing your stuff so that they could get whatever drugs they could get to stay high. You know I mean? That happened so fast. And um, right after that comes back to the land and you're looking at a back to the lander to a degree. I lived down on a, a commune for a while, a whole bunch of friends who went back to the land, religious communes, Eastern thinking. Uh, my brothers, I still have a little thing for my brother about, about the big plot of land that he bought called, he called magic land because we used to talk about finding a place you know, and it's these child, child of the 60s means the children of people of the 50s. It means, you know, man in the gray flannel suit, tin man, the whole kind of completely insanely uptight, made it through the war. You know, yeah, we're building a whole bunch of suburbs with white picket fences and we're wound so tight. We don't know if we can wind down. I'm speaking in the voice of my parents is to hammer down, you know, five martinis when they get home. And that vision was so horrifying, so awful. An entire generation said no. And psychedelics was a, about something important. It was uh, about really deep, but childlike vision. Not child, young child, but I mean, teenagers and young adults yearning for something different. I'm going to give a longer answer than you probably really meant to, but the back to the land movement uh, and some of the commune stuff, you know, I love communal living, man. I love communal living. If I could find a sane commune, I'd move there now today. Um, some of the best times of my life were like pulling a tractor that was up to its axles with, you know, 20 people around like a bunch of chimps going hoo, 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 and pulling out the tractor and then you, dancing around, uh, you know, now we can have our tractor in our communal garden and stuff like that. It was, you know, for the Western world, you connect into something that is uh, more how we evolved as a species. And psychedelics opened the door to a lot of that stuff. But very soon, the back of the land stuff, you know, you go to visit somebody and the guy comes out with a shotgun and hair down to their navel because they don't want you to see the weed in the back 40. You know, that you might be a narc or something. And you go this hard reactionary, almost right wing, libertarian, but extreme, you know. 
And then you had all the religious stuff, you know, they would, you know, you can, you can be in two places at once. If you meditate enough, you'll visit some of these spaces, but maybe not with the dangers that you saw up close and personal. It isn't just the folks lying in the gutter with dog do. It's the people who died. Some of my friends died because the psychedelics led to the heroin and the heroin led to overdoses and they died. And so for me, the window that opens up also let loose all kinds of stuff that we weren't ready to regulate socially, psychologically, politically, personally, economically. And um, I was asked to give a, a discussion at ACBS, you know, the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science, the ACT crew about psychedelics. Um, and I hadn't talked about it in a long, long time. And I got up to do this discussion about these very scholarly papers and these cool randomized trials and all those wonderful ways that this ACT model is being applied. And I just broke down weeping. Uh, I could already make words come out of my mouth because this was about something for people like myself. It was about putting love, consciousness, connection, a different way of being into the world, and it turned into a nightmare, a real, true nightmare. So, on the one hand, I am so, so happy that we're pushing the reset button and we're going to look seriously now, not just tune on, turn on, drop out. You know, Tim, I'm sorry, that was just not the right thing to say. And uh, at what it can do. And can we please do this in a way that is sane this time? So my own personal journey to quick connect to that. If that had all not happened in all of that ways, ACT wouldn't have happened, but ACT happens later inside my own personal struggles with panic. And then trying to do all the things I could do with behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, the things I knew. And then finding that if I turned back to Hippie Hill, I got traction on it. And that includes some ideas having to do with mindfulness and things like that. Uh, it includes the, uh, especially the human potential movement, it include Esalen, it include Fritz Perls, it included all that. Uh, but uh, I never talked about it ever, I don't think, until recently about having much of anything to do with psychedelics. I mean, there's a few words. I'm not trying to deny my own history or something. It's just uh, uh, even what we're doing right now, there's a whole lot of people who are hearing things like, well, let's just go on personal exploration tours, period, end of story. No, without guidance, Guidance could be by various sources, but without some sort of guidance, some sort of purpose. The shrooms don't talk to you, dude. That's bullshit. And if, the, if you think they do, you just wait to the time that they tell you that you're the devil or that, you know, life's not. I mean, they psychedelic trips have all kinds of crazy things happen inside them. So the chemicals won't do the heavy lifting. People have to do the heavy lifting. And in the 
indigenous peoples, when they used, and they all did, psychedelics, they did it with guidance and purpose. So how do we do that inside a commercial, pharmacological, you can write a script and just go or just get it off the street? I don't know. Uh, but I think ACT can be part of that, or the, or the psychological flexibility model. It's really not therapy that people need per se necessarily. So yeah, let's the, explore that territory. Sorry for the long answer. Oh, by all means. Um, you know, it made me specifically hone in on, you know, the ideas of, you know, you mentioned uh, human potential movement, mindfulness, Fritz Perls, and just how the ideas sort of went from, because it, in my view, learning act and before and since, I mean, I think that self as context, you know, obviously it's an incredibly useful clinical concept, but it's also sort of the most elegant description of a mystical psychedelic experience that I've, I, I immediately was moved by it when I read it. And so conceptually, I'm interested in that history of ideas um, from the genesis or from, from the, you know, the tripping or, or whatever, you know, into like becoming conceptualized in, in such an elegant way. You know, I have tried to write about this. Um, I even tried to do something for a liberated mind uh, and I have a really, really, really good editor who was working with me and, and, and she said, you know, what you just wrote just sounds like, you know, you had another trip and I got talked into, but, you know, things like, I'll give you an example. I'm not sure what had been consumed, but it was probably something reasonable. Um, we, we were careful about what we put in our bodies and tried not to do street drugs. You know, I had a chemist live behind my house who would make LSD in a really cool way, tartrated, it would last forever, et cetera. But he was loony toony. I mean, he old old man. He was six in his sixties when he showed up. I was in my twenties. And I, this is not relevant to the story, but he used to do things like uh, you know, have this like big powdered thing of LSD and he'd you know, wet his finger, put it in, go. You know, he just took like 20 hits, you know, and then like you'd say, mm, that's good. <laughs> just what a crazy. But anyway, but I, for years and years and years, I had tartrated LSD in my medicine cabinet. I don't know, it might even still be there um, uh, now, 50 years later, 40 years later. But um, my friend John Jones is in front of me, and uh, I'm looking at his eyes. And I'm seeing him seeing me. And I can absolutely see consciousness there, the, the way that you can see a cup in front of you. I, I don't know how to say it any other way. But I, I don't just see him being conscious. I see him being conscious of me. But then I realize that he's being conscious of me, being conscious of him and his very wide pupils and you know he was uh, tripping as well i was really confident that we were connected in consciousness in this moment he he was aware of my awareness of his awareness but he was aware of my awareness of his awareness of my awareness and that awareness was of his awareness of my awareness of his awareness of i mean it like to, looking at two mirrors i can only do it metaphorically and then seeing it almost in slow motion do what two mirrors held right do where it goes ting 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 like that well i had glanced at the clock before i sort of began to notice his eyes and it said five o'clock 
and it goes ding, 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 ding. And then I glance at the clock and it's eight, eight o'clock. And uh, I later asked John what happened. And he said, I sat very quietly uh, with my legs crossed on the sofa looking at him. And I didn't move for three hours. Well, I understand why the editor just said, this is just a freaking trip. You don't write about that. Or, You're going to get criticized for it. And it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. People think they'll think what they think, of course. Right. But I know what it left. What left with me is a sense of everywhere, always, everyone. And, you know, the selfless context piece of I, you, here, there, now, then, even with the basic science underneath it of relational framing, you know, if, if, if you have two objects, one that's bigger than another, and in one sense, this one's bigger than that, and this one's smaller than that, but in the other sense is they're connected in that way. The two are connected. There's a whole thing that happened there. There's not just this one to that and that one to this, there's that. Well, the same thing is true in consciousness. And I think that's where it comes from. I think your mama looked in your eyes and you did a little bit of ding, 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 ding. Just a little bit. I mean, dump natural endorphins. You had to, because you got to know that orbs like that signal entities or something that will mean the difference between you living or dying as a, six day old and you hop out of the womb ready to do it ready to connect in consciousness to others or we might just say cynically ready to be cute uh, because otherwise who's going to take care of these little rugrats pooping on the floor you know somebody's got to feed them and take care of them longer than any other animal right so consciousness for us is social and relational framing actually comes out because of social and so when we describe self as consciousness, the one that people come back and say, I don't understand, I don't get it. It's because the words point to it, but cannot be it. Because there are no words for no thing. There, there is no words for that without distinction. Words create distinctions. And yeah, we do have words, everything, nothing, always everywhere, infinite. Now we have those words, but as we normally use them, they're like cup, plate, table. It, they contain this, not that. Consciousness is not this, not that. It's, uh, it's settling into the oneness of connection of I, you, here, there, now, then. It, it's a, uh, it doesn't have edges that you can be conscious of. By definition, if you're conscious of it, you're there to be conscious of it. Now, we believe you can go on unconscious. We know that you can go unconscious. You can lose consciousness, etc. But you're not conscious of the unconsciousness. And so, metaphorically, I think we contain a part of us that's everywhere, always, and everyone. And when you connect into that and how powerful it hits you, you can never go back to... I'm the guy in the green flannel suit, you know, 
I'm the guy everybody looks up to. I'm the lowest of the low or any other bullshit crap that your mind will give you. I probably shouldn't be saying bullshit crap on a recording, I guess. I can talk about psychedelics. But... Yeah, we're it, it's it's good. We have an open open language policy around here. But <laughs> and speaking of language, but, but when you're talking about that, I obviously I think to people who've done it, or if you look at a lot, I mean, one of the um, psychedelics really disrupt the language function very badly, right? Like words words lose the reference; they don't make sense. It's um, a complete disruption of that. And to what degree? Do you think that that's uh, possibly helpful in having these experiences of, of that we call self as context um, versus is it just sort of like something that happens and this happens like they're roots of a similar process or, or does the disruption of language in your view perhaps lead to that self as context experiential? Well, language has two functions. I mean, one function is in problem solving and when you're trying and it's so dominant and so it's, it starts in communication i think and in cooperation you know apple you can take the perspective of the speaker it must mean i want an apple there's an apple and as a listener i'll bring you one you know even before you get a verbal community this is the claim as to where relational framing comes from because the smoking gum of consciousness is a name you know and being able to have it be a two-way street and Infants that don't do that don't develop normal language. So you, uh, you know, where does humanity start that journey? Well, it starts with reference. It starts with the two-way street of words and events, equivalence classes, if you're a behaviorist, relational framing and frames of coordination, if you want to talk that way. But in its problem-solving extension from cooperation, it requires time and comparison in order to solve a problem. And the way I usually use the example of how primitive that is, is how young humans are when they kill themselves. Because we're the only species that do that. And it shows up at around three years old. Two-year-olds don't do it. One-year-olds don't do it. Three-year-olds do it. In the first act book, as a beginning little story, a six-year-old girl threw herself in front of a subway train today. The father said, I mean, the authorities said her mother had died of a terminal illness. You know, you can imagine how small you were when you could say, you know, I'll rather be in heaven with mama than live here. And all it would require is names, attributes, and comparisons, and a little bit of time before and after cause and effect. These are really primitive. I mean, three-year-olds are doing it, which is why it starts. Yeah, but you also have another function of language. I mean, if language allows you to observe and describe, it allows you to extend that moment of mama looking in your eyes and dumping endorphins and feeling in the impact of, of connection in consciousness at six days old or younger. It extends into, I have this and you have that. If I were you and you were me, what would you have? You start being able to enter into stories our great literature and our start with the children's stories, you know, go to Lord of the Rings and just start with the children's stories. You know, they invite us as two and three years old to enter into the consciousness of another person and to understand their efforts and their, what they're trying to accomplish. And 
if we can't do that, we're going to be uh, cognitively impaired in a very severe level. We've got to be able to shift perspective. I hear nowness of awareness behind the eyes of another and see what they see and feel what they feel. And if you can't do that, you can't take advantage of the social wisdom of the culture. And you won't show empathy and you won't be able to be a cooperative member of the group. You won't, you'll be dangerous. I mean, we know that prejudice, stigma, violence has deficits in either perspective taking, empathy, or experiential avoidance. You know, it, you've got to be able to go behind another person's eyes, feel what it feels to like to be there and not run away when it's hard. And if you don't, you're going to abuse them. So uh, the so you know the values extension of mindfulness consciousness etc is built out by language. Language will allow you to just observe and describe. If you see a sunset tonight, you'll say "Wow," and you'll put a period at the end of that, or "Wow, how pink," and you'll put a period at the end of that. You're not going to turn it into a problem. You're not going to say, "God, you you know you 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 didn't give me the right shaped cloud." But you'll do that to yourself. So my point being that what psychedelics do, I believe, is rein in the excessive extension of language into a conceptualized self, who you are, your place in the world, a conceptualized other, who others are, what their place is, that cuts off people from connection with the shared sense of consciousness that these social primates called humans naturally gravitate towards and the cooperative uses of that into this uh, selfish, uh, narcissistic or self-loathing space that so dominates, is so recent and so dominant that it harnesses our basic sensory motor system and we have no idea what world we're living in. We will filter out the information before it can even get to the places where we can make choices about it. And you can show it in the fMRI studies and you can show it in the psychedelic studies. Part of what's so cool about psychedelics right now is that we get a chance to go back now doing it scientifically, not in the way that Tim was doing it or Dick and the rest of them who popularized it. Although they were scientists and they were serious in their own way. Uh, but of now really being able to drill down and say, what are the processes that we're setting loose here? And how can we set it up so that those happen? And how can we then carry it forward so that the message isn't, hey, let's do that again and again and again and again and again. No, you know, you, you open doors and visit spaces in order to learn from them. The person with psychedelics is not to become the person who has a trip every weekend or every day. I'm a little worried about the microdosing, to be honest. But anyway, uh, we, you know, you open doors and you see spaces and then you, you, you find ways to enter into that. And, you know, Baba Ram does it perfectly, you know, Dick was perfectly uh, right about that, I think. And we can do that now in a way that we'll meet that will land in the Western world. It doesn't have to just be some guru or big meditator or person on a mountaintop. It can be, you know, the person who, uh, you know, fixes cars or drives a truck or just normal folks.
if we can get the guidance. And I, th- I think I'm really excited about it if, if we don't apologize it, reduce it, turn it into just the, the, the shrooms talking to me or the brain made this happen. It's, it's a complex network of biopsychosocial processes, but it includes brain functions. And I do think language is like a parasite. It, you know, the, the, the problem-solving mode of language put onto yourself allows you to adopt a persona or mask in, in the original Greek word persona, a personality that is false. It's not who you are. Alex will open the door to a different way of being. Done right. And with some luck. <laughs> I think what you said about the importance of people in, in psychedelics, right? It's not the mushrooms that talk to us. It's the people, you know, my, my personal story is similar to Nate's in that I had these early psychedelic experiences that really opened me up. And, you know, I, I'm really lucky that I had some people in my life that kind of led me in the direction of Eastern philosophy, which gave me some framework to understand what the hell happened. Cause I didn't, I had no way of understanding it. Um, and then eventually when I, when I came across act, it just felt so consistent with these psychedelic experiences and my, my own kind of Eastern way of understanding things, you know, rooted in Buddhism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, Nate and I, we do, one of the reasons we do this podcast is we're so excited about the psychological flexibility model and it's, application. And, you know, one of the things even now in, I mean, there are some studies combining ACT with psilocybin assisted therapy, but in general, the therapy parts have not been tested. The therapy parts are very non-directive and general and vague. And, you know, as therapists, we're very excited about the potential of really using that to hone in and really maximize the benefit and minimize the harm with psychedelics. Yeah, the things that are in psychological flexibility, if we expand it a little bit, actually describe almost everything we know about processes of change from psychological intervention. I'm writing an article on that right now where we've looked at every study that has a statistical test of functional pathways of change inside a randomized trial for any psychological intervention. And we've looked at the entire world's literature. It took us two and a half years to do it. And I'll tell you the bottom line is that psychological flexibility expanded a little bit can handle everything we know, almost everything we know about processes of change. And with a little bit of, you've got to have a social extension to it. But the, the bottom line why that is important is that if we now begin to look for the processes of greater emotional openness, of greater cognitive flexibility, of greater attentional flexibility, of a sense of self that's uh, social and interconnected, and that is not uh, a categorical and evaluative, and, and of connecting with intrinsic values, things that are of importance to you, because it's just so and being able to organize your behavior around that. All of those things have been shown to be effects of psychedelics already. Well, the ones I just said, all of them. And you know, the measures are sometimes the thing like oceanic awareness and things like that, that, that uh, 
summarize some of those features in different ways, but, but in perfectly coherent ways. And we know if you don't have profound experiences of that kind in these areas that I just named, the effect of the psychedelics will not be lasting and they won't not be large. So what that means, I think, is that we can use psychedelics to do what good therapy has done, but not just that, well, life itself has done. I mean, the reason why these things function as mediators is they have to be helpful to people regardless of how you get to it. Statistically, that's true if you walk through what mediation does. Too geeky to be worth talking about. And frankly, there's problems with mediation as it is now, so I almost don't want to. But it, it, it requires statistically that regardless of how you stumbled on these processes, if you do the processes, they're important. And I think, uh, you know, I, I was part of the era where, you know, almost everybody thought it was almost like a religious thing, you know, to get people uh, uh, to take their first psychedelic trip. And we really worked hard to make sure it was safe and we would, you know, we wouldn't use so that they could be protected. You know, if somebody shows up at the door, we would handle it. If a policeman comes by, we don't have to worry about it. We're going to handle it. You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a religious purpose almost. It was not religious, it was spiritual. Uh, that's why I was weeping at that sense, is, is that it was about something. You know, it was big uh, and important. But you don't have to do it just with psychedelics. It's just that psychedelics allows us to take this narrative sense of self that so dominates our gate functions in the uh, brain that filter out sensory motor information so fast that we don't even know the world we live in. Uh, you know, a psychedelic trip takes you right up to the edge of a place where you can leap off the edge in a healthy way. And you don't actually probably have the sense that you're doing it volitionally, but there is a little place there. There is a little place that you can catch a, a yes or a no, even in trips. If you slow it down like in the micro moments, you, 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 and I think some bad trips are ones where you do half a leap and say no, and don't do that, dude. Get in a safe environment, you know, make sure you're not going to be harmed and say yes when the door opens. Yeah. But, uh, but it's I like the meditation uh, can do it, but I, and not just that I do. I think life itself can teach psychological flexibility skills and what will last. And I don't care if you call it that. I'm not trying to grab and say, it's all the ACMAL or something, nothing like that. I'm just saying, whatever you call it, those things are known to be important. However it takes to get there, let's get there. And psychedelics is, I think, a powerful and useful tool for that. That is dangerous because it's powerful, but especially useful because it's powerful. I want to offer, uh, you know, uh, a common metaphor uh, that I've used on the podcast. And it's, I think it's in the, somewhere in the act book. It's, 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 not too revelatory, but it's so useful here. When you think about the, you know, we operate, we navigate the world in terms of a map. You know, we're we're looking, we're 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 walking around looking at our maps, and it's you. We have a useful map, a conceptualization when the map is can usefully predict the territory and help us navigate. But also, often we we 
uh, are navigating from a map that is distinct from the territory and we're operating out of touch with the territory that we're actually in. And I think that part of what, you know, metaphorically psychedelics do in this is to sort of like, we're not looking through the map anymore. We're actually in immersed in the territory and seeing things or it offers us the opportunity to see the territory directly instead of through the map that we have built over years and years and years of learning. I agree with that. And there's a kind of cognitive map that's uh, not just descriptive and appreciative. Those are safe cognitive tools, but are uh, predictive and evaluative and comparative. And those are useful, but they can also be unsafe. You know, they're unsafe because you can easily start comparing human beings. You start judging yourself. You can start judging whether or not life itself is worth living. I mean, you can do a lot of creepy things with life. You can jump in front of a train at six years old. And if that ain't creepy, I don't know what's creepy. So how do we uh, use use these amazing tools we've invented as human beings? You know, apparently even the language trained chimps don't do what your 12-month-old baby does. It sets it on the journey to being able to do what you and I with the three of us are doing right now, or with the person listening to the podcast is doing right now. So the map is this conceptual, evaluative, problem-solving, comparative map if you're not careful. And commercial culture will do that so it can milk you like a cow and get you to buy stuff you don't need and you know, look at, you know, harvest your eyeballs for commercial interests. I mean, there's a whole lot of folks out there who are only too happy to give you a map that will serve their interests and not yours. And even I have to say, you know, the spiritual and religious thing, because the, all the, the mystics and what is mystical experience? Well, it's that transformational moment when these categorical value of judgmental concepts break down and a different sense of consciousness shows up universally. I mean, whether you're, you know, Eckhart Tolle or Buddha or whatever, universally when they write, if, if it's real, and you can usually sniff it out, you know, they write about that. Now, of course, then they start talking about it. And then next thing you know, there's religious wars or you're the guru, you know, and uh, F gurus, you know, the first Zen master I ever heard was Joshu Sasaki Roshi. When he first came from Japan, became a really important Rinzai Zen uh, teacher. I think that's the school he was part of at Loyola Marymount or in Los Angeles at what was then called the Cimarron Zen Center, later the Los Angeles Zen Center. Um, And go read the wiki site about how he's 100 years old and hitting on female accolades. You know, coot. You know, I mean, I lived a religious commune with a guy named Korean Munda, not as a member. I was there to help build a house. Me and who, my my first daughter, and who would be person to become my first wife. And uh, because she didn't have a house, and her husband, her husband, or had left her, and we had to, we I built her one over three or four months. Uh, you know, but Korean Munda did the same thing and almost lost his commune and then 25 years later did it again go google or wiki kriyananda and read about and so that was my first back to the land thing my point being 
we as individuals are being invited by life itself to be on a journey that includes an expanded sense of self-awareness that is inherently social. It's not selfish. It's not about you. It's not you conscious with your face in the corner, face in the wall. It's you in connection with others. That's where it started back to that mama's eyes moment because of the kind of creature we are. And then the tool that came out of that language turns on you, tells you who you are and how you compare to others. And so captures your consciousness that you can't even realize who you are, where you are and what, what your, what your journey is about. And what your journey is about is how to be whole and free, how to show up in consciousness and to care, do create and contribute in the moments that you're given, not because somebody told you you had to, and it's a wanging finger, not because you're a member of a religious group, although that's fine to do it that way, not because a guru has to hold you by the hand, but because that is your birthright. And done right, psychedelics, I think, can give a head slap to Western culture and its commercialism, materialism, and all the rest of it, is, and even selfish form of mindfulness and all the rest, and one at a time, but in community, we can redirect where we are going as a human community. I think it has that power if we combine it with solid science and with careful kind of cultural traditions that, that emerge around it. And, and I think that's what we're, we're trying to evolve in the psychedelic therapy movement. What are those careful things? I don't like biomedicalizing human suffering. I don't like seeing this just as, you know, MDMA for PTSD. <sighs> no, because like you, like you said earlier, I think that what's so, um, so useful, right. And why I've been since I, I read act like very excited Um is because the processes of change you described just a few minutes ago overlap so clearly to me with the processes, like they're the same processes of change. The processes of change are the processes of change are the processes of change. And psychedelics facilitate that. ACT is a therapy that can facilitate that. There are lots of ways to facilitate that, but the processes of change are what they are. And they are learning, like you learn. Right. Exactly. And that's that that's the key word to me. And it's it's so often missing in discussions about this. I'm like, well, if you're a human, what it means to be human is to learn and to grow. And if we're not talking about learning and growing, then what the hell are we talking about? Yeah, exactly right. And, and so while I'm excited about, you know, like the fMRI studies and so forth, there's a little danger there because you can say, oh, it isn't learning. It's just that your brain does something. Of course, your brain does something. Without a brain, you're not going to behave. But don't be turning yourself over to your brain. You're a whole person. You've got a body, for example. Part of the learning is right there. There's a felt sense. I mean, you literally can feel, see, sense, taste, hear the world differently than you're doing now. And the brain is a big part of that. But yeah, I love what you said. And if we, if we have that focus, then to the psychedelic researchers, I say, okay, let's find out what those processes are. Let's see that we look at them in a way that they're, they're kind of Catholic with a small C, they're universal. They can go outside even to the psychedelic experience because people can enter into those processes in other ways as well. And 
after the psychedelic experience, they need to know how to continue to learn, to maintain, to build, to, re to retain and use the processes that they can tap into. If you don't do that, you haven't finished the job. It would be like opening a door and then not walking through it. What's the point? If the point is what's in the room that you walk into, you got to go into the room and a good trip will help you do that. But then when you find there, you got to continue to use and build and make of, you know, put into your life. And within that metaphor, you know, the processes are the golden fleece, the great find. Now, as soon as we find them, we have to language about them and we're right on the edge of another, another round, right? Because, uh, you know, if you, I like the fact that you can take the psychological flexibility model and distill it down to a single word. And if you really want to, down to a single letter. Uh, you want a single word, love's not bad. You want a single letter? Uh, well, my fam my favorite song right now is Testo's, uh, uh, Kirsty Hawkshaw's singing it, a song called Just Be. I get you. I suggest go look at the lyrics because it's not like the artists and the singers and so forth haven't known about this, the, the, the novelists and the great story writers. Just, you know, B is not bad. That's a pretty good bottom line. That's the process. How is it possible for us to just be? We've got to learn how to be emotionally and cognitively open. We've got to be able to learn you know, how to attend to what's important and what our intrinsic values are, not the ones that come from shame and blame and wagging fingers. And we need to show up in consciousness, connected with others, building a culture and a life that's about that. And all of those are in the psychedelic studies already uh, maybe not language about exactly that way but that's okay so wouldn't that be cool if we, uh, we can redo the 60s now where the actual purpose of creating a more loving world if you want to put it into a sentence as a person who was there on Hippie Hill, I could tell you my friends wanted to create a more loving world. Period. And that was what we were up to. It wasn't about, you know, how many micrograms we could take on a given thing and go listen to, you know, the Grateful Dead or uh, Air Jefferson Airplane or whatever we're doing. It, that was a face of having fun and so forth. That's part of a, a loving world is be able to have fun, etc. But we were unwise in so many ways. And um, why would we be wise? So I don't want to blame the hipsters, but you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. But I don't want to blame anybody. I just want to push the reset button. And let's bring something into the modern world that matters. And love matters. Just being matters. Humans matter. Life matters. And psychedelics are about that. At their best. Aren't they? I think so. I think so. It, um, there was such a strong headwind that, you know, so at that time you're describing, you know, you, you were, there was such a strong headwind you were burning into. So I'm sure that 
a big part of the fallout from that thing was just a, being beaten, you know, by a system that was not accepting of that, wasn't ready for that, you know. And so, the, of course, oh, there was a lack of wisdom and, and mistakes being made, and 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 a lot of that. But I'm sure some of that was just the outright resistance that you all had to to run into. Well, it's happening still. I mean, yes, the young people when they see, you know, we got to do something about Mother Earth. We got to do something. About yes. We got to do something about racism. We got to do something about economic disparities. We got to do, you know, and what do they run into? They run into flat on full bore uh, resistance, not just the individual resistance of the, but, but the cultural resistance of gigantic amounts of money that are uh, earning their money, money out of harm. And I have to say, sometimes deliberately, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but, you know, read the emails of Big Tobacco and see if you don't see evil there. Well, we know that you can read the emails of Big Oil and see the same thing. But we know that you can read the emails of Big Pharma and see the same thing. Do you not know that? Do people not know that? In a thousand different ways. Let's add big, Big Tech to that list. Just. Big tech, let's add. Absolutely big, all of it. You know, milk and eyeballs for profit, what I was just saying earlier, even if it trashes our culture. So who is going to step up? And we got to be careful to not have political dialogues that divide. I'm not here talking red and blue. Uh, you know, there's some uh, deep wisdom in both of those political cultures, for example. But, yeah, who's going to do it? We're going to do it. How's it going to be done? I don't know. But I think it starts with the individual and their personal transformation. You don't go back. If, you know, a, a psychedelic trip, if it really lands and you have enough support to, be, to see that you can build those processes into your way of being and doing, you don't go back. And uh, because you can never close that door again once it's open, you, you know something that you'll never unknow. It take brain injury to remove it. Now, can we harness that? And that is not the trip. It's the processes that you connected with. And knew were so in a way that was experiential and not just abstract, cognitive, and categorical. You knew it the way you know breathing is of importance or something. You, you, you could see and sense and feel connection, continuity, universality, timelessness, uh, purpose, values love just being you could right you know i, I kind of want to put a plug in for acbs the association for contextual behavioral science for any of our audience who isn't familiar um acbs is um a professional organization i don't know it has over nine thousand members or something but you know I, as you're talking steve like i had this thought like um acbs is kind of like my hippie commune and I don't want to over-idealize anything and yeah, yeah. not everyone has this experience, but my experience of the people in this organization 
is kind of similar to what you're talking about. People who want to, you know, make the world a more loving place. You know, when I go to ACBS conferences and I'm around my people, I'm like the best version of myself because people are showing up with open hearts and open minds. And, and I think that social community is so important in this psychedelic movement. We're not doing this out on our own, that we, we need to be connected as we move forth with these very powerful tools. Yeah. And, you know, why does ACBS have that feel? It's because when people are on a personal journey around these flexibility processes and, a, and trying to put it in the lives of others, um, and then when you create an organization that deliberately tries to put it in the organization, which we did, we, we consciously, purposely, you know, try to put acceptance, non-judgment, present focus, values, et cetera, into an organizational manifestation of it. And we did things like you can't certify therapists. You can't declare yourself to be the expert and give anointings, you know, no effing gurus. Uh, but, you know, we, you know, people matter. You know, like we have spent, it'll sound a little bit like self-praise, but if I could just say, you know, we've spent so many hours trying to dig out the research that's going on that's relevant to the contextual behavioral science and act and so forth around the world. And we've been shocked to discover hundreds and hundreds of hundreds and hundreds. That's true. We I mean, like more than 200 randomized trials on act that were completely unknown to the English speaking Western world, completely unknown because they were published in Korean or published in Chinese and the indexing system is so horrible because it's so racist and classist and organized around the 18% of the world's population that live in white educated uh, so-called democratic, we'll see, uh, hang on to it, gang, uh, world, the weird uh, population. So in, in area after area after area, we've done things that are natural expressions of what I think you would do if you took these processes seriously. I think any organization can do that. We're trying to actually figure out and work like pro-social, mm -hmm. et cetera, how to do that, how to take science and inform how to create cooperative groups and so forth because we don't really want to have it just be but if you know worldcon our our world conference will be in san francisco summer of love is going to happen again and uh, after a two-year hiatus we're meeting in person uh fingers crossed uh coming this june i believe and you walk into the door and just say hey uh, i'm from so-and-so or just anything and Instantly, people are going to say, oh, welcome. How are you doing? What are you, what are you interested in? How can I help you? And nobody's getting the, you know, the 10 things to do with new visitors, the world to cons. I mean, well, maybe there is such thing, but it's just what you would do if what you're about is creating an accepting, loving, interested, not just interesting group that has this serious values-based purpose. Uh, our purpose is to create a behavioral science more worthy of the challenge of the human condition. We actually wrote it down and say, here's our purpose. It may take a thousand years, but that's our purpose. And um, you can feel it. You can feel it like you can smell the air or feel the temperature. Now that's not everybody has that experience. I don't want to 
you know, people then say, that's oh, a cult, it's a cult. Well, okay, well, it's the cult that invites our critics to criticize us. You know, it's the, you know, it's a kind of weird cult, doesn't do any of the rules that cults do. Um, so that buoys me up. That makes me say, look at it and say, we can grow something out of these processes that we we see inside psychedelic trips. If they're if it if we if we're lucky enough and it's it hits in such a way, out of good and useful forms of psychological intervention, psychotherapy, etc. Out of life itself, out of misery, you know, go read Tolly's story. You know, misery will do it. Misery opens doors. Uh, there's a lot of doors to finding what's there all along anyway. <laughs> it's just, we don't have the maps to get us to the doors to open and say, Oh my golly. Yeah. That's familiar. You actually kind of know, isn't it kind of weird that something as strange as a, a really transformational trip, you know, instantly that it's in some sense familiar. Huh. It's like you came home. How could that be? Yeah. And I think it's because it's tapping into these things that are so basic to who we are, even as a species and as an end, as members of that, those wonderful, amazing, sad, poignant social primates called human beings. That's a wonderful uh, description and point. And I remember having, um, I've tried to describe it before, but having a, a, a you know, mystical, whatever, words you want to use for that, uh -huh. that point, that moment of a trip. And it was after doing it for, you know, many, many months. And I had, a, I had an experience and I remember trying to describe it afterwards. And I described it as like, I just felt, I knew the answer to every question I ever asked, right. Every, every longing, every question I'd ever asked at that moment, I understood. It just felt, like you said, familiar. It felt true. It felt connected. It just like this, a tremendous relief of, ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Such a powerful moment. Yeah, there's a sowness to it. Even the word truth almost, it is like a truth, but it's not the mm -hmm. kind of truth that's like an argumentative truth, you know, like right. this versus that, false versus true. It's something more like a sowness of it. Uh, uh, what's so? It's so, yeah, it's so, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it has some qualities to it, you know, like, uh, who was it? I think it was Werner Eichert that said, you know, the flip side of what so is so what. And it, and it's true. There, there's this playful kind of mm -hmm. thing, you know, while it's of importance to touch that, it's not like now it's important to get some, we're already there. Yeah. It would be like if I had this long journey and I'm ready and then suddenly you realize you're already there. Mm -hmm. Um and then you can do journeys out of a different space. Then the, the journeys that come out of that deep connection are now playful journeys. I mean, they, play can be important. I mean, you just watch a three-year-old as to who can touch that, that tree first, and they will put every ounce of life they've got into their little legs to get there first. It's important, yeah? And yet it's important. It can be like that only because we know in some sense um, it isn't like 
you play and then you win. It's like first you win and then you play. I mean, it's like we're already there. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> now, what are we going to do? Well, what are you going to do? It's an expression of what's already there. And uh, I think we're the psychedelic movement, and I'll call it a movement. I think it is a movement again is playing the very serious game of helping people touch what's so in such a way that their lives are transformed and they can be more lovingly and consciously who they are already. And to bring that into the lives of others. I mean, it's a spiritual, can you want to call it that, journey. Any word slows you down. You always want to put it in scare quotes. You can always put scare quotes around every effing word you say, because you realize that the words are ab out, you know, near and yet out. That's what the etymology of ab out means near and yet out. They're not the experience. They're the, you know, the finger at the moon, not the moon. And the trip when it happens that way, that spiritual experience for example, is not ab out, it's in. So much so, sometimes you don't even have, you don't have words for it. Sometimes you don't even want to put words to it. Have you noticed that? It's almost like so sweet. It's like the love you have for your children or your, a loving spouse, you know, it's so sweet. Even to say a single word, ab out, it feels dangerous because you know it's not it. There is no it. We're talking about something that's so, yeah, we gotta have words to it. We're talking about, God damn it. Excuse me. It's all right. No words. It's all we've got. The, the Greek philosopher Cradle's got this space. And here was his last lecture. You know, those, those robes with the hoods behind us because you'd turn and they'd throw coins in. The hoods, you know, the, that's what students did. They paid their tuition by coins. To the hoods of the uh, philosopher uh, uh, philosophers. But uh, his last lecture by myth, I'm not sure it's true, was this. And that's it. That was it. Not even a single word passed his mouth again. Because it was like, be careful. Watch out. Watch out what? This. <laughs> like in some religions, the, the, uh, the, the word that they have for God is one that you're not allowed to utter. Well, yeah. I have saw, you know, I'm uh, discovered I was uh, at 14 years old that I was Jewish by the maternal line. My mother was so traumatized by uh, her Nazi sympathizer father, long, sad story. But um, I've some very, uh, some, um, you know, Hasidic uh, Jewish folks are very interested in act and stuff. And they send me messages and they talk about the Lord God, for example, they, they put a space in the word Lord, they put a space in the word God, and they're very careful never, ever, 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 ever to say the full word. Mm. You know, you have to always leave gaps in there for anything that has to do with the deity, the one, the, and uh, that's an ancient, ancient thing because it goes you know, back. If I know your name, I can command your action and all of that. Hercules, blah, blah, blah. And um, 
apparently because in the early, you know, Julian Jane's origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind, if you ever read that book, that, you know, the, the oracles of Delphi were understood by everybody because God's talked to you. I mean, language has only been around a couple hundred thousand years or a couple million years and I blink. And in the form we have it now with written language and stuff, you could remember your ancestors back to the point where there wasn't written language on the planet. Wouldn't take that much. With a little bit of practice, you could do it. Like 5,000 years ago, you can do that. Remember 100 things in a row or what it would take. So we're playing with something that's so recent that no wonder we're bad at it. Remember, we need help of things like psychedelics just to show up to a different way of being. Mm -hmm. Or whatever. Psychedelics is not the only way. I want to yeah. I really do want to resist that hippie deal that this is the only way in. It's not. It's not. Bubba Ram Dust was right. It's just a way. I really appreciate you sharing your story, Steve. I was in the room when you shared in Dublin, you talk about weeping and what came across was like you, you watched this wave crest and then you watched it fall and the, the, the inspiration and then the pain. Um, and I, I wondered like, what, what is it like for you to, to see the psychedelic movement unfold? And I mean, you sort of already answered this, but is there any other lessons, anything that you see that concerns you or, uh, you know, what wisdom do we need to really keep in mind as we move forward? Well, let's keep the whole person in focus. I, I, I feel a sense of joy, anticipation, excitement. Um, and then there's a sense of, of fear and uh, caution. Um, and of the, of the two, I go with uh, joy, anticipation, excitement. Because uh, I see the possibility. And not just the possibility like out in the future. I see the unfolding reality of us as a human community revisiting these spaces and these means in a way that has a seriousness of purpose and a breadth of uh, community and communication and uh, the willingness to bring new tools to it, such as uh, different forms of science and so forth, uh, that we're not going to give up. We're going to try to get it right. And um, one of the things I would, the, the, the cautions I would have would be, let's not biomedicalize. Yes, of course, we live in a world where we biomedicalized and we've taken human suffering and put it into categorical concepts that don't actually describe the lives of the individuals, but open the door to lots of pharmaceuticals and things like that. And I, it wasn't done with evil intent, but enough already. It's just not working. None of those syndromes have led to understanding of the actual etiology course in response to treatment, you know, a really deep understanding of where it comes from, how it works and what to do about it, which is what we need to know about human suffering. Where does it come from? How does that actually work? What we do about it. If you don't really know that, then so I would, I, I would be cautious. I know we'll get the grant money. I know we need to do it, but about, you know, immediately going to uh, 
you know, this is a treatment for major depressive disorder. Uh, you know, please, you know, in the large trials of major depressive disorder, one of the largest trials ever done, 3,700 people, more than half of them had combinations of signs and symptoms that were shared by less than one-tenth of one percent of the entire population. You know, there were 1,100, well, a little bit less, uh, different combinations of signs and symptoms. This is a joke. It's not, this is not real. And so that's one. Let's not biomedicalize it. Let's not try to justify and get the lawyers and stuff and the lawmakers to allow us to do it because it's only for these diseases. There's no diseases. Human life is in, and suffering. Human suffering is not a disease. Now, there are diseases. I don't mean that. And I can take a ball peen pan over your head and you can act really weird. And that's a abnormal process. But the vast majority of what we're dealing with is not that. That's one. Number two. Uh, this is a long rant and I've got to be really slow, but it's really important. Let's do a science that's ideographic. Let's do a science where each voice matters. And you don't realize, gang, scientists, you don't realize what you're doing when you put people into big groups only. It's fine to do randomized trials. And where you look at variability between people only as your metric for what are measures of central tendency and build your categories around that. And this is a dark story, you know, Galton and R.A. Fisher and Carl Pearson, you know, Fisher's Z, Pearson's R, and standard deviation, Galton, were all eugenicists. That's what the tools were for. And at your kitchen table, the neighbor plumber will talk about how proud they are that their kid's in the gifted and talented class. He just drank another big swell of Galton's eugenic dreams. These tools were meant to categorize people along a dimension so that we could give privilege to the elite. Galton's first book was called Hereditary Genius and argued that people like him, the upper classes of the UK, were the ones who should be allowed to breed. And not who? Well, go read what happened when people are trying to escape the Holocaust. Read what R.A. Fisher wrote. When my great uncles and aunts were dying in ovens, and they were saying, don't let them into the UK. They'll pollute the gene pool. So we are so deep into it in our concepts. So please, gang, there's another way. The individual, yes, we need nomothetic principles, but we have the statistical tools now. We know that Galton's methods, et cetera, are false. That's another rant. The physicist proved it in 1874, the, eugenic, the ergodic theorem, and it was mathematical proof in statistical physics in 1931. We've just now realized the last 15 years that it applies to psychology too. Well, and, and I think it spits the spirit. If you are walking through a trip with someone, you're changing a network for an individual of the things that we've been talking about in this session, the sense of self and how they handle cognition, what purposes, the entire network changes. Your journey will be different than the next person's journey. We have names for the processes because they help us see the individual. And so we, 
I love the fact that I'm doing it right now. I'm taking some of our tools or measurement tools that we're developing out of process-based therapy. We're seeing this, which is where ACT is going. And our statistical tools, which are idiomic, we call it. They're ideographic. Then you do nomothetic generalizations only if they help you see the individual with more precision. They're not top-down categorical things like IQ and personality disorder and this is a longer conversation, but gang, if you're, in, if you're interested in, in CBS, if you're interested in ACT, if you're interested in my work in any way, do follow what's happening in process-based therapy and let's do our science of psychedelics in a way that where every voice matters. We can do this. There's statistical ways and measurement ways now to do this that are not top-down categories. And, uh, that will change the world because when people feel that they're heard in their social, I mean, why are people getting mad about it's not just he and she it's never been just he and she, this is not something new. It's just that we, our cognitive maps didn't allow anything else, you know, back to the way that you were talking about it, Nathan, you know, and it's not just that. Why are young people, the very people who are interested now in psych psychedelics, you know, so interested in kind of their personal purpose and their ability to create a life that fits them. You know, it's, it's their music streams. It's not a radio. It's, it's, they grew up in a world in which, you know, the computers we have in our pockets have allowed them to be themselves in a different way in community, in connection, but not, normative categories put atop people. So it's not just gender terms that are taking a fall. Politics, it's not just right and left, et cetera, et cetera. Personality, on the Psychedelics will open up that space where we can learn more about how to empower the individual to be their full self in a way that is not chaos for the culture. Unique concepts, but what we got to get them in ways that they don't blur the individual. They help us see the individual. I'm very curious what you would, um, I don't know, maybe have any uh, advice for someone who, you know, for, for someone who was uh, trying, you know, interested in doing research in this area. A lot of the research has been randomized controlled trials to try to clear the FDA approval process, right? And those, like, by definition are categorical and by definition are, you know, when you're doing... <laughs> placebo controls, which with psychedelics are really kind of like, it's messy because you're testing a therapy and a drug at the same time. And you're controlling it with something that doesn't really control it. And, um, but that's, those are the hoops that are being jumped through right now, but there's also, I mean, hopefully, I mean, it seems like there might be some public funding that's starting to happen. And so I'm like, what are, what are some of like, if you have any like specific, like what are some of the specific yeah, I mean, either advice I, or specific questions you'd love to, to see research that wasn't focused on hoop jumping? Yeah. And, well, here's uh, what I would say, do a high density longitudinal measurement of processes of change and the goals of the person, the things that are important to them, also their problems, the things they may be struggling with, you know, things like um, loneliness or distress about anxiety or distress about uh, the depressed mood and so forth. You don't have to put them in categories to do that. You can, and then the high density longitudinal measurements where, you know, and it's not that hard now. We have a, 
I'm now president of the Institute for Better Health, which is a 45 year old charitable organization. And we're putting in, we acquired an app that Joe Sorochi, who's a good act person, originally did called Nudge Learning. It's not yet publicly available. You can see it on Apple, but we want to use it. Uh, but within a few months, we're going to put some of these new measures that we've developed that are meant for high density longitudinal. They're not scales, they're different. They're item collections. That's a longer story. But it'll give you a couple, three times a day an invitation to say, what's going on? What's going on? You know, how, how, how are you finding places where you can express your, your emotions? Are you finding places where you can do what's of personal importance to yourself? Are you doing things that are fostering your relationships with others and your sense of belonging? You know, boom, 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 you know, with little finger swipes multiple times a day. By the time you get a month in, we can do a, a really cool statistical analysis of you. And we can give you a network that says, this is your life. And universally, when you do it, people say, yeah, that is my life. Because we know we've experienced one thing leads to another. When these kind of things come up, I tend to do that. When I tend to do that, I tend to do this. Sometimes when I do this, I tend to do that same thing I did at the beginning. And sometimes that's a self-amplifying loop. Let's take something like when I think about doing something in the area of belonging and relationships, I feel afraid. I feel vulnerable. When I feel vulnerable, uh, I kind of tend to withdraw from people. When I withdraw from people, I feel alone. And when I feel alone, I feel as though, you know, other people are not safe, but I yearn to connect with them. But then I self-amplifying loop. So that's social anxiety disorder, the, 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 the movie, you know. Uh, now, each person will have a different one. Each movie will be a little different. I just use a categorical term there, social anxiety disorder. And when we do it, we'll have many different pathways. But then we also have the possibility of, you know, if at this moment, when I was feeling very vulnerable, if I reached out and talked to somebody about how vulnerable I felt, they might say, me too. Do you know what I mean? I mean, in that moment of connection, we might almost cry together because we feel connected in the poignancy and pain of living a whole human life where we do remember our past traumas. We do remember that we were abandoned and betrayed and lied to or that we weren't the wanted one. Yeah? I've not met anybody who has any relationships that ended that way. We've all had that. What are you going to do about that? What the mind says is don't be vulnerable again. The problem-solving mind. You know what a psychedelic trip and the wisdom of the processes that you'll find in there is no, it's okay to be you in pain and reach out and connect and live a whole human life. Yeah, so... Um, if you can just get that high density data, go check out what's going on. I, a statistical program I freaking love is called Gimme, G-I-M-M-E. Katie Gates and Peter Molinar developed it. If you can use R, it's free. And R is just not that hard to learn. Lots of little videos will teach it to you in a matter of hours. And so we're our app is going to give high-density longitudinal data that will automatically go through Gimme. It'll be free, by the way, for this use. 
in-app purchases so we can afford to give it to you, but uh, uh, you will be able to go in and, as a clinician and look as an individual. So the single biggest thing I think the way you get out of this top-down categorical thing is not to abandon randomized trials. When you're in China, you need to speak Chinese and in the world of healthcare and so forth, RCTs are the gold standard, et cetera, even though people don't realize so many of the things are statistically wrong and based on Galton's eugenic dreams. But putting that aside, we can put right inside those trials high density longitudinal measures so that that individual and that individual and that individual comes out from the blur of humans as error terms. And suddenly you can see Nathan and you can see Brian and you can see Steve with their age spots. You know, Words and all. (laughs) Words and all. Yeah. There is a reason why the humanistic folks, when that really started happening, and there were a lot of, you know, the gestalt people and stuff like that, the context in which the 60s happened and so forth, self-exploration and so forth that was in there, the human potential movement, and then Esalen and all that, who was doing these things at Esalen, it was Fritz Perls, people like that. And what were they saying? They, was, they wanted science, but they wanted a science that fit our ability to see the individual. That's what Maslow actually said that almost in every word for word. Maslow was my first science hero. Skinner was my second science hero. And I viewed him as another face of Maslow in a way. And ACT really is that. It's those two. Kind of, but And the reason he thought it needed a different kind of science is it needed the kind of science that wouldn't be these top-down categorical blur the person experimental group thing and the one that really walked in to see the person that's would be awesome if psychological research could take the spirit of what's inside their finding and put it even into the methods they use to find that's that's remarkable and it's like you know as you're talking to it's it's happening right now on this mass scale but it's being used to sell you things, to steal your attention and sell you things, but it's the same thing. It's being used for evil. <laughs> it's being used for evil, but what you're describing is what they're doing. They're I building know. this, this, they're building this model of who you are, of who I am. And then they're like, how can we get them to pay attention to this phone longer and buy this thing? But what you're describing is using the tools that I we know. have. And, and 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 what if we use these same tools for the betterment of people? Absolutely. You know, big data and what's going on. And now with evolutionary algorithms and, and things of that kind, you know, what uh, Elon's trying to do with full self-driving, what uh, Google's trying to do with what, you know, link should I give you for your next uh, YouTube or whatever. Uh, you know, and my horror vision is RFT is getting damn close to being discovered bottom up by these folks. They won't know it's RFT. They won't know. But when they realize that relation is the unit and they can train to it, you know, we'll get beyond some of the artificial intelligence stuff. I think we really could get to closer to the uh, the uh, conscious robot. I think that's pop- maybe actually be possible. But and that would be a scary day. <laughs> Although I'm glad I got my Tesla stock because I want to I want to buy that robot. But uh, it's actually true that they're doing it by brute force. They're not yet 
fully, I think, understand the, uh, the philosophical assumptions in a way. Some are talking about that. And it would be really cool, wouldn't it, if the, some of the psychedelic researchers could connect it into the AI people who are in the big data world, but brought it into this kind of, we're, we needed a name for it. Uh, Stefan and I, Stefan Hoffman and I, my partner in crime with this, and Joe Sorochi uh, invented the word idiomic. And because we need a word that fits wherever you'd say normal. Mm. N- normal is not what we need. We don't need to be normed. We don't need to be put on the standard deviation to figure out who should be able to breed or who goes to special ed classes or whatever. Uh, who's up, who's down. You know, we don't need to sort people. We need to empower people. And um, at the kitchen table, we should be talking about concepts that empower people individually, even though the concepts are normatively te- uh, uh, available. There's not a word for that. So I'm trying the idiomic. I don't know if it'll work, but, uh, and we have some concepts like that. I mean, reinforcement is like that. So it was, you know, Skinner was working with three animals at a time. He was really focusing on the individual and yet we come concepts that apply broadly. I think RFT is like that. I think psychological flexibility concepts like that. And we should do research that really put the flashlight on that. We'll need a lot of data, ironically, when we're doing it one at a time. Because to then make generalizations, you need to do a kind of pattern matching. If, if it's not treating people as error terms, if the generalization is the source of error, you're kind of, it's, you're flipping stats on its head and you need a lot to do that because to find people who are like Nathan whose networks are like Nathan requires a lot of people. There's not that many people like Nathan. Only a few. <laughs> but there are some. And uh, we're going to get there, I think. Uh, I'm excited about where behavioral science is going to go when it really fully realizes what the ergodic error is and that if you really want to do psychology, you can't be doing it with these blurry, treat people as error terms methods let's use the the psychedelics to be the leading edge of that um there's a some folks in the acbs universe who are doing psychedelic uh, workshops and so forth and they're doing high density longitudinal measures and watching how you know this trip perturbates the system you know you're everything fit together in this way and then it fits together in a different way that's awesome. And uh, I think will give us the, uh, the signal to filter from the noise to allow the variation selection of the scientific journey to happen so we can evolve a better science of psychedelics and of human beings. Perturbates the system. I'm going to use that phrase for sure, like repeatedly. <laughs> well boy does that do i mean it is one of the things that, that i agree so cool about psychedelics is that regularly not always but regularly you know such a big cherry bomb was swallowed that you know you can see the system shift almost in real time and that happens with spiritual experiences that 
regularly, you know, something like 95%, if you ask the question right, so like 95% of the human population has had spiritual experiences. We used to think it was a tiny fraction. It's not, it's as common as dirt. But people usually don't talk about it that much and they don't know what to do about it. They benefit from it or not, but they don't know how to produce it either. You know, psychedelics puts you in the space where very high frequency of spiritual experiences with the right guide and the right context, make it safe, all those things. And um, so we can do a science of spirituality in a sense. I don't mean that in a blasphemous way. I don't mean, you know, we can put God under a microscope. I just mean the features of transformational, if you will, spiritual experiences uh, can be looked at. And the best way is not to do it in this blurry error term way. Like this is what spiritual experiences are. Now that each person should be, their voice should be heard. Do the science in such a way that that's possible and you can understand that experience. And then that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. And then, yeah, maybe some collections into subgroups. There's these kinds, et cetera. Only if they then allow us to go back and understand Nathan even better. Brian, even better. Steve, even better. So I want to, you mentioned a minute ago, like uh, the other, we have the, the, the ACBS conference this year is in San Francisco, um, which is very exciting because I think there's going to be a presence there too for like a bigger presence for, um, you know, about psychedelics in the program, it seems like. And I hope, I, I hope so. We got an active special interest group. I hope they're working behind the scenes to make it happen. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, well, great. Um, <laughs> Some great centers there, and uh, you know, right there. You know. Yeah. Can, oh yeah. Let's yeah. bring some of those researchers and all of that. And uh, if I can brag on my co-host for a second here, Brian's going to be doing a a keynote on this at at the conference as well. So wow. on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So it's going to, you know, we'll, we'll have a chance to have a lot of these conversations in person in San Francisco this summer, which is kind of feels very fitting and exciting. Awesome. If there's a way I can support it, I'll let me know, but I'll, I'll be in the audience. I guarantee you. (laughs) Yeah. That'll be exciting as hell. Well, thanks for being with us today, Steve. It was a great conversation and, you know, you've done, I, we appreciate your support in our, our efforts to combine CBS and ACT with psychedelics. And I think, you know, Nate and I are just so excited about the possibilities here. And we hope that those listening also feel excited about, about this and I encourage you to, you know, explore uh, ACBS and, and ACT if, it's new to you. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And I encourage that as well. And, and to, you know, people should know if they come to the conference or if they get into this, we're not the kind of actuberalis crowd. We're not trying to grab or control you or make you any different or make you a true believer or get you to take the tattoo and learn the chicken ritual. We're not trying to do that. What we're trying to do is uplift us all to focus on what matters, what those processes are. And if that matters to you, there's a community of folks out there and there are many other ones out there. So this is not the only one, but this is one that really has that kind of cool quality. And you can, and there's tools that, that you can use that if you're interested in psychedelics to empower the work that you're doing. 
uh, that people like uh, the hosts of this uh, podcast are actively developing. So uh, I invite you to be part of your journey and to lend your voice to that community. You'll find that uh, people are not at all interested in dominating you. They're interested in engaging in a genuine conversation with you. Yeah, so uh, meet us in uh, meet us in San Francisco. I'm about to. If you're going to San Francisco, I gotta be singing. Uh, <laughs> they hated that song. They hated that song because why? Because we knew that people would show up. Right. We uh, knew that that precious moment. We could feel it. You know, the summer of love moment. We could feel. You know, I knew it when I, if I could finish with the 30 second, I knew it when I came out of, oh, some sort of uh, head shop or something on uh, Haight-Ashbury, uh, on Haight Street. Ironically, that was the name, not spelled that way. But, uh, and there was a tour bus that went by filled with people who are at least 50 to 60 years old and a person saying, and if you turn to the right, you'll see what's called the hippies. <laughs> and of course, I'm not there in an entirely normal state of consciousness, let me just say it that way. And I'm looking up at like my mom and dad, <laughs> and I'm just going, oh my God. We're like, we're in a, we're in a zoo. We're like, <laughs> I'm like, look at us. You're like, look at the monkeys. <laughs> and part of me knew like, this will not last. This is not going to go well by the next summer. I knew, uh, and uh, off we were, escaping to a magic land and then some farm somewhere where you can grow something on back forty. I mean, that. Let's not do that again. It's too important to get it wrong this time. So come to San Francisco, and uh, you're all welcome. Yeah, how flowers in your hair or not? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to do the sane and stable and playful version. Maybe this time in a way that will last. 